90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I, you know, mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's finals week, man, and I did some math, and I'll never math again. Oh, what kind of math did you do? I have 1,220 pages to grade in the next week. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So <laughs> let's see. 1,220 divided by 7, that's 174 pages a day. Divided by an 8-hour work day, that's 21 pages an hour. Uh. <laughs> uh, I mean, as long as you do a page every two minutes for every 8-hour, 7-day week. I, t- I told you no math oh my god oh i thought the 1200 was depressing but nope those smaller numbers are even more depressing <laughs> it's time to enlist the tas oh gosh i just hate that you know i don't know i'm torn we're actually not supposed to let tas grade our finals for intro geology so oh really mm-hmm yeah interesting yeah that was a that was an interesting faculty meeting too where we decided that but we've got two children mm-hmm. yeah that's true my kids are always asking to help hazel did write all over somebody's test last time it was real funny <laughs> <laughs> so you know whatever i imagine by the whatever maybe the 24th hour of this i'm just gonna be like yep you get an a and you get an a <laughs> I was laughing where somebody had tweeted, uh, of course, not necessarily endorsing this, uh, but where somebody had tweeted a paper they got back that uh, there was a stain on the paper and the professor had circled it and said, sorry, I spilled my beer. (laughs) I've definitely spilled coffee on test before. Yeah. So, you know, who's to tell? Coffee, (laughs) whiskey, it's all the same color. (laughs) Anyway, how are you? Oh, pretty good. I've been doing some uh, equipment that's actually going to go down boreholes. So that's fun. That is fun. We had to have our well pump replaced. So that was a fun little borehole experiment. (laughs) That sounds like an expensive borehole experiment. Oh, it sure was. Yes. And a whole, of course, it went out on a Friday night. So we were without water. It was like camping in our house for four days. But mm hmm. All right. Yeah, and we had not done laundry, so it was, yeah, it was an exciting weekend because of that, but I definitely, like, rushed home to watch them um, pull the well pump, and our well is 160 feet deep, which I was surprised that it was that deep, and they replaced the iron rods with just plastic. Yeah. That's crazy. So they laid out 160 feet of this plastic and, you know, put their little pipe junk on it and glued it together and basically just went by hand just zipped it down the hole yeah i I can see that wow that's uh that is inexpensive and much less time consuming than the other way and he goes oh yeah (laughs) so that was really interesting and fun cool Mm -hmm. yeah i'm sure they were like why is this girl out here with us like please (laughs) leave us alone lady <laughs> but it was really fun. Well, my brother-in-law does uh, irrigation for farms. Mm-hmm. 
And so it's very interesting to hear him talk about, like, they put 300 horsepower pumps down. Oh, yeah, mine's a little smaller than that. <laughs> uh, so, so they're they're pulling you know, thousands of gallons uh, That's crazy. a minute out. Yeah, or one system had uh, two eight-cylinder car engines in tandem <laughs> driving the pump. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. Wow. Yes, yeah, so they 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 had hit some really interesting things because when when things fail with that much power behind them, they fail spectacularly. Yeah. <laughs> Rapid unscheduled disassembly. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Ours was really boring looking. So That's too bad. Well, I guess for a water, well, for a house it's probably like a steroided up sump pump. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, that was all it was. We changed everything we could except for that, just hoping it was something, you know, on this end. And it was not. <laughs> but So now we have an entirely new well set up. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So that was fun. But, yeah, like you said, costly. But it's super cool. It was just neat to look at it. And it was surprisingly clean, which I thought was crazy. I would have thought we had really gross, nasty water because we have really hard water. So I figured there'd be, like, scale all over everything. And it wasn't bad at all. Hmm. Yeah, so it makes you realize how caustic the borehole environment is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because that stuff's pretty nasty. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so. So, you know, talking about water, it's something that we don't have a lot of in the desert. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Our transitions haven't gotten any better over <laughs> however many years. <laughs> the talking is smoother, but that's all, folks. <laughs> um. Yeah, so I actually, uh, not in a large amount, but this this show kind of gave me some PTSD for my uh, qualifying exams. I'm not going to lie. All right, so mm-hmm. it was about things other than traditional sedimentary processes? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, chemical weathering. That was, I had... Ooh, geochemistry. Uh, oh, yeah, we all know how I feel about that. <laughs> Um, It was with respect to, yeah, paleo environments. And this was a take-home exam, thanks, Susan, um, that I only had 24 hours to complete. And I remember I checked out 17 books from the library and brought them to my office to finish. Questions, did you use a card catalog to find them? Look, buddy. (laughs) They were physical books, though, yes. (laughs) <laughs> and I definitely use the catalog on the machine. <laughs> right. But, yeah. I didn't have to punch card it in if that's where you're getting. <laughs> no, no. I just remember, you know, the little uh, cabinets of index cards. I know. Those cabinets are quite sought after in, you know, hipster decor. I imagine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So I wrote a lot about weathering. <laughs> in arid and not arid environments and i thought that since we talked about deserts last week and how they form we should talk about the weathering um i taught a class a graduate class a couple of years ago called um, extreme environments and it was really fun we did a quarter of the class or a third pardon me i do math um a third of the class was about the polar environments a third of the was about hot deserts and then a third was about planetary stuff and weathering in deserts is weird man yeah because you say well there's not a lot of weathering because there's not a lot of weather 
Right. So, yeah, you're not going to have a lot of some of the more traditional styles of weathering. Right. Yeah. You're not, you're not creating saprolites or anything like that um, here, you know, and you get some kind of all kinds of weird chemistry in the tropics. Right. But if you spend any time in the desert, there's some there's some stuff happening. I mean, it's on a different time scale, I think. And that sort of got me. I've never really looked at this. Have you looked at this Peltier diagram on weathering? Uh, no, I hadn't seen it before you put it in the notes. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've really paid attention to it either. But it's precisely what we're talking about because it graphs mean annual precipitation versus mean annual temperature. And then within that, the types of weathering you're going to get, which are terribly quantified <laughs> by. So someplace that you have a lot of precipitation, so say 1,500 millimeters or more, and the mean annual temperature is above you know, 10 to 30 degrees Celsius, you have strong chemical weathering. Okay, and then as you go down in precipitation at that same temperature range, you go through moderate chemical weathering. And then where we're at in the desert, very slight weathering of any kind, unless you get cold, in which case you get some mechanical weathering. And so in the colder environments, mechanical weathering takes over. In warm, wet environments, chemical weathering is the key. So I, I have one major problem with this diagram. Uh-oh, just one? <laughs> Go ahead. Well, other than, you know, they're arbitrary lines, basically. But yes. uh, both of the axes are the wrong way around. Yes. The temperature decreases upward and the precipitation decreases, decreases. to the right. Yeah. Uh-huh. I saw it drawn a couple of different ways. So this is, I hadn't really looked at this at all. I don't, I'm sure I've seen it at some time, but I did not recall ever seeing it. So I don't know if this one that I pulled, you know, where it lands on Peltier's original work. <laughs> well, but be warned when you look at the one that will be linked in the show notes. Yeah. Because the first time I started looking at it, I was like, oh, okay, so lots of precipitation and hot. What would that be? I was like, what? No, that's totally wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, okay. It's, it's really interesting. Um, yeah. I do like the thinking about this whole thing where no land areas with these climatic conditions are on earth. Right. So there's no cold and lots of rain. But on earth is the key aspect, as we'll see later on in our fun paper. Uh, right, exactly. Um, so when you talk about deserts, if you're just looking at this, you see very slight weathering of any kind, because what are we at? 250 millimeters, okay? And it's not until you get to around, you know, five four degrees c and colder that you get any mechanical weathering but i thought we should break down we've got a mix of mechanical and chemical weathering that does happen in the desert um with mechanical dominated cold deserts but you still have chemical and mechanical factoring into hot deserts um this is where the ptsd sits in talking about this chemical weathering but i thought we should start there first <laughs> Right. So the chemical weathering, one of the main ingredients involved in chemical weathering in the desert is salt. Yeah, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it. And so you get this capillary action of water getting pulled upward mm -hmm. through the soil column. 
and it picks up lots of dissolved ionic things while it's doing that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, hot deserts, you've got evaporation happening during the daytime. And just like you said, it acts like this capillary wick, and it's through these alkaline desert soils. Alkaline desert soils, lots of gross junk in them, lots of magnesium, calcium, you've got chlorides, all the stuff that's available. And then when that water gets up to the surface, it precipitates out its salt as it evaporates, and it leaves behind a big crunchy crust. Yeah, and you know, so if you remember from chemistry, a lot of these chlorides can sort of substitute for each other. So it doesn't matter if it's sodium chloride, traditional salt, or calcium chloride, magnesium chloride, potassium chloride, a lot of these things can sort of work for each other in these processes. Right. And so you say, okay, but the desert's dry. What do you get do in the desert at night? Actually, I guess this is what I gathered when I was researching these notes um, is used to think, you know, hot deserts are hot and there's not a lot of water, but there is actually a lot of water. They get much higher humidities at night. Okay. We've talked about that kind of stuff before. Um, the, the, the fun of relative humidity. Exactly. <laughs> and so <laughs> therefore, you know, there is available water out there. And if you've been to De- uh, Death Valley before, you walk on the salt flats everywhere and there are little pools of water all over the place. So there's, there's water. It's there, and what it's doing is this whole dissolution and precipitation, and that's, just like you said, one of the chemical processes. You've got to have water for chemical weathering, and so that's how you get this chemical weathering out there. But, I mean, you've been out to the desert before, and you remember walking around. It's real crunchy on the on the surface. It is, and it makes movies like Holes very unrealistic <laughs> because they're digging these deep holes in soil and you go out there and you're like there's no soil it's like a centimeter and then rock (laughs) (laughs) i love that the part about holes that you were okay with were the bearded dragon just dressed up as vampires but that's okay (laughs) those are the little lizards i'm just yeah (laughs) yeah uh we have a bearded dragon so we're real excited when we saw that um (laughs) yeah so yeah, that's the unbelievable part. But that's actually true. You know, it's super dusty. Um, like I alluded to before, in the tropics where you have all this rainfall and these really humid areas, you know, one of the things that you do is develop this rich, deep soil. And it's all humus, which is organic matter. You know, it's black and really stinky. <laughs> and you don't see that at all. And really deep, right? And it also, in these areas, develops very quickly because of the vast amounts of rainwater that you have. And you can look at that Peltier diagram and see you have strong chemical weathering with lots of rain and really hot conditions. But the desert, you got the really hot conditions and not lots of rain. And so soil is really precious out there, which when we talked about last week, what was the 15% of the desert is vegetated? Yeah, not much at all. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So really, when you're walking through the desert and you're busting through all that crunchy soil you're killing lots of things really um because some of that crunchy crust starts to grow bacteria as well and they call it like this organic these little microbial mats right um so those can develop in with the salt crunchies that you get too so really shallow desert soils it takes a long time 
to develop that stuff and it really doesn't have a lot of organic matter in it, in it at all there's no humus like you get in more chemically more quickly chemically active weathering situations but that's also why it's 15 percent vegetated though as you do develop soil uh, some interesting things happen right because salt does weird things geologically yeah like you can record daily temperature variations in salt crystals i know that's not where you're going but that's my favorite part yeah so it wasn't where i was going no I but. Know. <laughs> but i do love that we've got daily temperatures recorded from the permian in salt crystals and that's amazing weather from 350 million years ago because this daily capillary wick action stuff it's it's just that it's daily so those salt crystals grow little bitty rinds every single day and if you can get out a fluid inclusion in there you know what temperature the water that they formed in was and then you can have a guess at the air temperature which is the coolest science thing ever it's pretty cool yeah okay sorry what were you gonna say <laughs> well so salt is you know not dense compared to rock mm-hmm. uh so or compared to most rock so it flows over geologic time and can cause all kinds of weird things to happen. It's a big source of petroleum traps in the world. Uh, yeah. And it can also lead to some interesting weathering things, too, just because it does this. It's very easy to dissolve and move and re-precipitate somewhere else and leave a cavity or wedge itself in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, salt behaves plastically at any depth besides the surface, which really messes you up it messes up a lot of seismic stuff but just like you said it also you know makes rocks move in a way that they can trap a lot of petroleum that's the main uh, these things they form these things called diapirs not diapers that's what the word looks like but it's called a diapir <laughs> which if you have enough sediment pressurized on top of this salt they kind of squeeze up into these weird little towers and those are the diapir things and Underneath the towers, you can get all kinds of cool things trapped there, like oil and gas. So uh, everybody knows what a mushroom cloud looks like. Uh So that's a density-driven flow between a less dense fluid hot air and a more dense fluid environmental temperature air. Uh It's exactly what these things look like, except they happen over geologic time. Same physics. (laughs) I love it. Different time scale. It's so cool. And also, you can, you know, have these big salt cavities really deep in the earth, and you can, um, you know, like, isn't there like a church that's carved out of salt somewhere in Turkey or something like that? I I wouldn't doubt it, but I've never heard of that. That's underground, (laughs) yeah. And then there's that very famous story about the salt mines that accidentally, they were digging out salt underground and mining it, you know, for salt. Uh, right. And they dug too much, and there was a lake on top, and it literally drained the lake into the salt mine. Oh, yeah. So that, that actually we should talk about sometime, uh, yes. because that was that was uh, drilling on the surface. Oh, that was drilling on the surface that drilled down that, into the salt cave? Yes, it oh, intersected okay. the mine. It go. wasn't supposed to. It, it intersected the mine because of a coordinate transform issue. Ha! <laughs> um, <laughs> Those danged O-rings. And then... It, uh, 
yeah, it dissolved the salt with water flowing down and sucked the rig and everything else God. around the lake down into the mine. Yeah, like boats and everything, too. Yeah. This is insane. So when your students complain about, you know, getting points off for dumb stuff like that. Those does it really matter if it's WGS 84 and NAD 23? Yes, yes, it does. Yeah, exactly. Just like the, you know, yeah, the metric to English conversions. Yeah, it does matter. Get it exactly correct or people die. Um, so that's another show, but... But salt. So <laughs> salt, it's one exactly. of those things where if that was a sandstone and you drilled into a, a sandstone quarry, that story would have been much less exciting. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly right. Um, salt's really weird, and this is one place that you can get it. <laughs> um, evaporites are really weird in general. We should probably talk to somebody that works on them more than you know either of us do, which is not at all. Correct. <laughs> and I didn't really think about chemical weathering in terms of deposition, but I mean, it's true because it's like constant dissolution and precipitation, essentially. Right. So, yeah. Um, so the other chemical weathering is also a precipitation, but this is precipitation of my favorite thing in the desert, which is desert varnish. Which is pretty much what it sounds like. Uh, you get this layer of pretty tough dark coating on exposed rock faces yeah um it's real gross i mean it looks like creosote almost even if you're more familiar with that um and it forms on these stable rock and cliff faces it doesn't really form in limestones it mostly forms on sandstones and basalts which it's real hard to see on a basalt but you get those in the desert and it forms on top of those there's too much kind of permeability in limestones and too much water flowing through them so you see this out in the deserts the hot deserts of utah and nevada quite a bit because you've got those beautiful yellow mesozoic sandstones out there um and it's usually this black slick coating it covers everything and these are generally manganese oxides or sometimes they're a little bit redder and you'll get iron oxides and it's got a fair amount of quartz in it and then some clays Right. And I mean, these are very thin coatings. I don't think we can stress how thin they are. Yes. But I mean, you can see them from miles away, which is what's so weird. Um, there's a really cool paper. It's been 10 years ago now. Um, it feels like it was new because I remember when it came out <laughs> about desert varnishing, desert varnishes. They're only like a micron or so thick. I mean, it's sort of like anodizing for rocks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it's a very thin, but actually pretty tough and protective coating. Right, and so those microns can add up. Um, it is layered, and so this stuff, it's, like I just said, if, if you have a manganese one, it's really black. Um, if you have an iron one, it's more orangey or red. They look really cool under the SEM. They're mostly inorganic, which you would think that maybe since it's manganese or iron that you would have some microbes on it. But we haven't really found that. Like I said, this this 2008 paper about desert varnishes looked at them under SEMs and, you know, what they do. And they kind of pit into the surface. And so although it feels slick and it looks slick, once you get it under the SEM, it's a very highly topographic uh, surface, which if you've tried to image stuff on the SEM is not fun. Not at all. <laughs> so, so how do these things get there, though? Right, and so this is just one of those, I mean, it's water. You've got to have water. 
And the way I teach it sort of on the intro level is just, you know, you've got water, it's running along through these desert soils, which are crappy and alkaline and have all this weird stuff. It picks up these ions, flows over these cliffs. It's sort of PT conditions change and it deposits these ions onto these stable rock surfaces. So, you know, that's the, that's the intro way to think about how it gets there. But the point is you have to have water flowing at some point. Um, and so this happens during, you know, the minute rainfall that you get um, by the rains and all the stuff that they pick up from that alkaline soil. And so as, as the water evaporates, as it flows over this cliff, it drops out its little oxides and just builds up this tiny little layer of this varnish. And that varnish also is uh, scratched into to make petroglyphs out in that area. Exactly. So that may be the most famous thing. Maybe you're like, okay, I don't really remember what this desert varnish is. But if you've seen any of the petroglyphs out there, that's what they are. They're sort of inverse. And you chip into the black part. And so your little petroglyphs look yellow from the sandstone or red from the sandstone beneath it, which is kind of... I always teach it as, look, it's chemical and mechanical weathering because some person is chipping away at this rock, too. Um, but you see those petroglyphs that are chipped out of the desert varnish all over the place out there, not just in the national parks. They're, I found a random one at one of my field sites, which was very, I don't know, unnerving or something. It was interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's evidence that people were standing exactly where you are. Yeah, exactly. Like, how many millions of not millions of years ago, thousands of years ago, sorry, not geologic time, people time. <laughs> well, and also, so if you have trouble visualizing what these look like, uh, think of those nameplates outside of people's offices where it's like one color of plastic on top of another. Mm. And we etch away the top to let the bottom show through. So you're etching away the desert varnish to let the rock color show through. Exactly right. So, so you have to wonder if like outside their cave, you know, it's like... <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Gronk. <laughs> I love it because it's like, you see all these petroglyphs and I, it's gotta be, it's graffiti, man. Yeah. Some of it has to be teenagers that are just like, uh, that's, that's your kind of dog. I'll draw a better dog. Right. It just really has to be that. I mean, some of it obviously is messages and holds a story, but some of it's just people practicing. And the ones that I first saw I remember going on, um, we take a first year field trip in geology and anybody gets to go that's a declared geology major or minor now. And we saw these petroglyphs and they look like aliens. And they said they don't know what they are. Like they're drawn and they look like aliens and they're, you know, thousands of years old. And that's real scary. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I don't like to think about it. But speaking of aliens, this is not the only place we see this stuff. No, so we also see desert varnish on, drumroll, Mars. Yeah. Um, So it's further proof of water, but we don't really see organics in this desert varnish, and I think they got really excited and were like, okay, stuff's living on this, but stuff doesn't really live on it here, so, you know, there's probably no organics in it on Mars either. Right. It's just a mechanical process. Just more iron oxide. Chemical mechanical process. Yes. Yes. A little of both. <laughs> yeah. So, but that takes us to sort of my, my more preferred weathering mechanisms. 
the mechanical weathering mechanisms. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. Um, I'm supposed to be the one that doesn't like chemistry, John. Even though I'm giving that up, that's my. <laughs> well, it's not that I don't necessarily dislike those. I just find these very intuitive. Yes. So the first one is exfoliation, which is not the word that I think of because I think of exfoliation when I think about granites, but it's the same kind of thing, sort of. Right. So it's not somebody like scrubbing the rock surfaces, trying to get all the little loose pieces off. Correct. (laughs) But it's, you have a, let's say a granite that is injected uh, deep and then eventually it's raised to the surface and things are weathered off of it. It is drastically depressurized. It is in a much lower pressure environment than that in which it formed and will be trying to expand. And the process of doing that, it sort of spalls off pieces like a, like an onion. Yeah. So if you're used to a granitic landscape, like these are in some places, many places in Colorado, um, but also in the Northeast is where you see these a lot too. Those big round granite boulders, like that's how they get that way. It's that onion thing. But you can, there's a YouTube video of this happening in real time which is the craziest thing. It's like this granitic outcrop that you can actually hear the crystals popping. And we have linked to it in past shows. If I can find it again, I will. I love it so much. (laughs) I try to show that in every intro geology class when I talk about this because, you know, geology is real slow. It's real boring to actually see this stuff happen. Um, But that's from depressurization, which is not the kind of exfoliation that's happening out in the desert and it's also not windblown sand which is what it feels like it should be to me <laughs> i mean depressurization could happen yes in the desert but it there's nothing special to correct the yes that's not yes exactly nothing special to that place but what else makes rocks expand and contract other than pressure changes giant hair dryers <laughs> yeah so you know a, a kilowatt per square meter ball of gas yeah Mm-hmm. So and temperature changes. That thing, yeah, bakes the, yeah, snot out of some rocks in the desert for sure, right? And so it's not just that it's hot during the day, but it's that it's really cold at night in the desert. So, you know, a desert, this is why things are not adapted to live in the desert, because it's ridiculously hot during the day, and then at night it freezes, <laughs> Yeah, and so you have different minerals with different thermal conductivities, mm-hmm. and you have different areas of the rock that may or may not be in direct sunlight, mm-hmm. and you have different minerals that are different colors. So you get all this weird differential heating that builds up all kinds of strange internal stresses, and then suddenly the rock starts radiating like crazy into the clear desert sky at night. Yeah, um, this is this is really interesting to me, too. I remember being out with my advisor in Death Valley on one of the first field trips that we took out there. And you find these little piles of rocks that have just been like disaggregated. They're just pieces of what you could almost pick them up and glue them back together. You remember Marvin the Martian? Yes. Yeah. So it's, if you envisioned what his disintegrator gun would do to a big boulder that's exactly what this looks like that is exactly what it looks like and i mean in a place like death valley where there's not a lot of people walking around 
you see these piles everywhere and you're like what what is happening and that's exactly it it just expanded and contracted itself to death yeah which is weird <laughs> i find it very interesting it's one of my one of the mechanisms that was my favorite on this whole list <laughs> um i the i never thought about the different colored minerals making such a big difference you could do well maybe we will i don't know i you could definitely do a master's thesis on this yeah, I mean, it might even be a fun, like, intro to geology experiment to get a rock that's got a bunch of really different uh, colored and minerals with different rates of thermal expansion. And be like, we're going to put this under one of those McDonald's fry heat lamps for a day. And then we're going to go throw it in the freezer. And then we're going to come back on Friday's class and pull it out and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. You could totally do that. Get a diorite or something like that where it's yeah. black and white and clearly different like that um obviously this happens much quicker in um sedimentary rocks that you have out there especially like said said aronites don't freak out john we're just going to talk about this one rock type (laughs) (laughs) so if you've got you know pieces of sedimentary rocks that are glued together you know that's going to very quickly disaggregate just into their original grains it's like you would never even have known it was a rock again at one time yeah you always think about like okay here's this piece of sediment and then you see it in a sandstone and you're like okay here it is in this sandstone you know how many times could that thing have been a rock before it's the rock that you hold in your hand now this is a little existential but it's also worth thinking about Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know it's probably a lot it's probably been in a lot of rocks it hasn't just traveled around until it made it into this rock that's in your hand now i mean we're not getting many new pieces of material to work with right yeah exactly and so seeing these piles out there you understand how easily it happens i guess and probably how quickly too yeah yeah it's pretty gnarly um when you also create all that extra surface area when you're not doing it on a sedimentary rock, you've got a whole bunch of volcanic rocks out in the desert. You know, you create all those new sharp edges, and all those great sharp edges are tons of surface area with which you can enhance chemical and physical weathering pretty quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. So even though there's not a lot of rain, you can enhance it pretty fast by disaggregating all these rocks through exfoliation. But that's not the only mechanical effect that's going on we also have things like ice wedging right and so this is great um my friend and i when we took our kids when we both just had one kid back when we were sane um on a trip through the desert we went to arches national park and i made her sit through obviously the little thing on how the arches were made because i had explained how i thought they were made and then we watched this video, and I was like, she was like, man, you were really wrong. <laughs> <laughs> because the way all the arches in Archer National Park get made and the arches around the world, it's from ice wedging. Which um, is super not intuitive. No, I would have thought, just like you, those exfoliation or even a much larger degree of wind you know mechan- just simply blasting like mechanical weathering by wind blown sand 
But it's not that. It's ice wedging. And so obviously in the daytime, it's hot. So water is water if it's there. And in the nighttime, water is ice because it gets really cold in the desert. It's just the perfect, you know, radiate all that stuff off. It gets real chilly. And so when water turns to ice, it increases in volume by what percent? Don't remember the percent, but yeah, quite I, a bit. I looked it up. Yeah, it's 9%. <laughs> okay. And so that's a huge amount, right? And so when water is in between these grains or in between, say, maybe these little lenses of rock that are in the process of exfoliating off, um, it pops it off because it's got, you know, almost 10% more area and it goes, oh, I can't handle this. And it just pops huge amounts of it off. And there was a YouTube video on this, and I have been unable to find it. It has since been taken down, um, of one of the arches basically growing bigger. So the top of an arch, if you're walking through an arch and you look up, that whole top part, you could hear cracking, and they get back out of the way, and the whole thing falls down. Not the whole arch collapses, but a large chunk comes out. And it was because they were hiking right in the morning, and the sun had just come up, and all that ice had formed and then turned back into water. And so left this void. Rock didn't have anything to hold it together. And just huge chunks of it fell off. It Was that the monument arch collapse from back in like 20... No, it was just a 11? little... It was a little bitty one. And it didn't collapse the arch. It just created a bigger arch was all. It was a small... I mean, it was like desk size that came off. But it was really impressive. Just because, hmm. you know, they're just walking along and they're like what's that sound and then this whole like sheet of rock just falls down right and it's like oh yeah because the sun was just getting down into that into that little canyon that they were in um and so ice wedging can play a big deal and just like exfoliation you know it creates all this new surface area too which just enhances the spaces that are available for chemical weathering yeah so i those are really the the big weathering mechanisms that are at play. There are, of course, things like wind-driven sand uh, that can just sandblast things and make all kinds of interesting formations. Mm-hmm. But, and one of my favorite words. I know. I put it in there just for you to say it. Yeah, so I'll say it as the teaser for next week is we're finally <laughs> going to talk about Ventifex. Uh, it's so, they're so cool. <laughs> Literally, because they in polar environments too um so the wind can do some really cool stuff the water what little there is can do some really cool stuff so i thought that um we can talk about you know cool features that you'll see in both cold and hot deserts and then also the many shapes of dunes because i really love sand dunes i think they're real neat and it's really interesting to talk about and they're one of those perfect ties in with climate right because the wind plays such a huge factor. So over time, you could tell wind direction by looking at sand dunes. And I'm sure I'll talk about Titan because sand dunes filled with hydrocarbons are just the best. Right. And if you want a primer, go back and listen to our Titan show from about a year ago now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I don't think uh, Titan's the only extraterrestrial body we're going to visit. You don't have to wait till next week. We're going to visit one right now. Yeah, we're going to talk about what would happen if we made a very interesting switch out on planet Earth in this week's Fun Paper Friday.
I love this. This one was so great. I was really proud of this one. Uh, I was laughing pretty hard reading this paper. Uh, this is a situation where someone saw an interesting question on Stack Exchange. And since Stack Exchange doesn't really like kind of open-ended what-if questions, uh, it was shut very quickly before this person got to answer. Um, so they, it's one of the things I don't like about Stack Exchange, but but yeah, so they decided to write a paper about it. Exactly. I was going to say they did what any good academic would do and put a paper up on archive. And I love this paper title. It's simply called Blueberry Earth. <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing. <laughs> and this is from uh, Anders Sandberg from Oxford wrote this paper and it comes from the what if question what if the entire earth was instantaneously replaced with an equal volume of closely packed but uncompressed blueberries (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah and so he does a very physicist approach to this Mm -hmm. which i like very much saying like well okay i don't know the exact density of unpacked blueberries, but we know it's going to be between this and this. So we'll call it the middle because that's the smallest error in this calculation. Anyway, uh, a very geologic approach to doing this. Yeah, it's great. Um, You could read this paper without any knowledge of the math going on, which isn't much, but, and just understand how science gets done. That's kind of what I like about it. Yes, and I do want to know if, so the Stack Exchange username was Billy Bodega. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> if they are aware. I know. That <laughs> since it was closed, I don't think it can be commented. If they are aware that there's an entire paper to answer their question and now it's being Man, discussed on a podcast. I hope so. I hope he at least tried to find out or at least contact Billy Bodega about this because <laughs> it's so cool. But yeah, just like you said, it's just this simple this is how you do it. Um, one of the, the second, when you're talking about what's the density, right? He likes to point out, note that these are the big, thick-skinned, high-bush blueberries rather than the small, wild, thin-skinned blueberries I grew up with. Right. <laughs> Simply because, you know, if you had those tiny little thin-skinned blueberries, you'd have different packing density and they'd break far more easily and... Maybe we wouldn't create the cool stuff we would with thick-skinned blueberries as our earth. (laughs) And so, you know, he says, well, one source has the density of blueberry pulp between 980 and 1,050 kilograms per cubic meter, but it's temperature dependent, how many solids there are, how much water was added or not. Okay, that's, we're going to call it a density of water. Close enough. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, somewhat lower than the likely value, but there you go. And this is how science gets done, and that's okay, right? And how you pack the blueberries is a big deal, too. Um, And so he says, you know, if they were hexagonally close-packed spheres of water density, and then you can get a density with this, um, how you pack them, but you'll more likely have random packing. And so you get a sort of density of your random packed blueberries, which you can turn into a mass, which is, uh, you know, reduce the Earth's mass by 0.13, which is not much at all. 
Well, so yeah, it reduces it to 0.13 of what it was. Oh, 0.13 of what it was. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Because we get tiny, tiny gravity. Right. So we have gravity that's neighborhood of a meter per second per second, which is about what the moon is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So great. I weigh less on blueberry earth. Fabulous. <laughs> so the next part. So we established that. Okay. That's first step. The simple problem. Mm-hmm. Now I say, well, the blueberries are not going to survive. You know, the core of blueberry earth is going to be under so much pressure. The blueberries are going to burst. And he says, while there is a literature on blueberry mechanics, of course. <laughs> he has three citations for this. <laughs> which we will be looking into for future fun papers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so I-, I loved this. He said, well, I didn't find a great estimate of their compressive strength. Mm-hmm. So if I put a sugar cube on it, it's not going to break. And a sugar cube's a gram. If I put a milk carton on it, which is 1,000 grams, it will break. So we're going to split the difference and say 100 grams is probably good enough. I love it. <laughs> Again, this is how science gets done. It's fine. <laughs> this is the essence of a Bohr problem. Yeah. It's, it's so beautiful. Like, you don't even have to know what he's talking about. Just be like, oh, okay, he just picks that thing in the middle after these two ridiculous and then if you do look in the, some literature, you see that the actual values are between 178 and 219 grams. So our 100 grams is not so shabby. Not bad at all. So as you have these blueberries, at some depth, they're going to start squishing. And that is a surprisingly, I actually thought this was really deep. Um, it was 11.4 meters. Yeah, so they calculate in here what all students in geoscience intro classes calculate as the lithostatic gradient. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How much does pressure increase with depth? And when pressure hits a certain point, the blueberries are going to start breaking. Mm-hmm. So after about 33 feet, they start breaking. So you would be standing on the surface. Uh, the earth would get dras- or you would get drastically lighter. And then you would be waiting around in 33 feet deep piles of blueberries. Uh, but not for long. Free blueberries. <laughs> um, yeah, because when you're going to pop a blueberry, now it's not just pulp in there, but there's a lot of water. And so now we're going to start packing these bad boys, not as little spheres, but we're going to release all that air and start to compress this fluid. Right. So we're taking the air in between the blueberries. It's coming out. We're turning it into a liquid core planet. Mm-hmm. And so we start compressing. This wasn't too bad. Um, I was surprised it wasn't smaller than this. So it's 0.88 times smaller radius than what we have now at about 5,600 kilometers. But yeah, <laughs> a 20%, okay, no, uh, a 12% change in radius. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's still a huge deal. Yeah. I mean, so. If you were standing on the surface and this compression happened, it would be a 730-kilometer fall. Right. So with that and all this air, we're really messing up our atmosphere now. Yeah, because the scale height of the atmosphere has now gone up by a factor of like five. Mm-hmm. So we now have storms that top out at 50 kilometers instead of 10. That's awesome. Um, uh, we cannot... Which is oh, cool. It's super cool, but we can't gloss over the fact that um, as we compress those blueberries, 
over time. So he, he says the free fall time scale for the planet, right? The time it's going to take to collapse under its own gravity, if you didn't have any other forces, is 42 minutes. Yeah. That's the answer. Now, <laughs> I just Of course, <laughs> it will be slower, maybe 42 hours. I don't know. Yeah, um, but it's 42 something, which means this is a seminal paper. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway. So you've got that going on. The atmosphere, because it's so much deeper, we have only about 4% of the light that currently reaches the surface actually reaching the surface. That's crazy. Uh, but we're injecting a lot of water vapor into the air, so we're starting to make a greenhouse climate. But that doesn't matter anyway. Because the heat produced from the gravitational contraction is immense. <laughs> so it's not just pulpy blueberries like what happens when, you know, I accidentally step one that my kid dropped. It's turning it into boiling jam. The, one of the favorite sentences. Um, the result is that the blueberry earth will turn into a roaring ocean of boiling jam with the geysers of released air and steam likely ejecting at least a few berries into orbit. <laughs> because our escape velocity will be so low because our gravity is a tenth of what it is now. Yeah, yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> uh, this is really interesting to think of, too, in terms of atmospheric chemistry, right? So you got all this water in the atmosphere, all this water vapor. So is it going to be this greenhouse gas, or are you going to actually start losing a lot of it? because of the escape velocities and the relatively low gravitational pull. So what's actually the climate going to be? Yeah, you're bubbling through compression and all that jazz, but what does this mean, you know? And you're releasing all this steam into the atmosphere too. Does it build up? Does it escape? You know, it only takes a small cloud layer to help trap this stuff in and you don't have like photo dissociation and all this stuff. Um, so yeah, the atmospheric dynamics of blueberry earth are almost more interesting than the surface dynamics. And we'd probably have some pretty thick clouds. Mm -hmm. um, if only 2% of the water in this roaring jam ocean uh, does turn to steam, uh, the atmospheric pressure would end up somewhere around 217 atmospheres. <laughs> That's a little uncomfortable. Yeah, so that's um, that's ballpark two thousand psi. Yeah, so Venusian type stuff. Um, I thought that was interesting. That four percent um, of the light level is really close to like what you would see on Titan, too. So, see, there's actually some, you know, applicability to this seemingly ridiculous exercise. Well, and you say this is crazy, but then you say, well, there's a there's a world where you can flap your arms and fly like a bird because the atmosphere is so thick. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This seems a little less far-fetched. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Um, till we get to the <laughs> till we get to the awesome core underneath our roiling jam ocean. <laughs> so, this was an awesome part of the paper because what you may or may not realize is that the mineral ice has different phases. And some phases form even at high temperatures under very high pressures. Yeah, not surprising. Mm -hmm. uh, and so ice 7 will form at pressures of 3 gigapascals or above. Mm -hmm. Which so, 
happens real quick here. Yeah, um, two thirds of the radius of the planet, so eighteen hundred ninety-five kilometers somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So most of the interior is going to be a frozen ball of jam. Delicious. <laughs> this is so cool. Now I noticed he did not take into account in here how that would affect the rate because you're going to have a an expansion, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about that, but I don't know a lot about the different ice forms. So yeah, it won't be. It shouldn't. It be won't be nearly much. what it is with normal ice. Right. Yeah. At surface conditions, obviously. So, but you're also going to do some really weird stuff with your blueberry ice. Um, yeah but he doesn't stop there he goes on to rotational effects of blueberry earth so we have to conserve angular momentum figure skater blah blah mm-hmm. um we get smaller our rotational speed must go up so a day is now 18.9 hours yeah and our oblateness changes quite a bit right 8.8 times increase over the earth um it says still not comparable to Jupiter, but still that's weird. Um, but we don't have any axial tilt change, so seasons on Blueberry Earth are the same. But then comes the one that's got to be killer for you. There would be no magnetosphere. Ugh, I can't even do my job on Blueberry Earth <laughs> for so many reasons. <laughs> hey, I think if you maybe didn't take into account. I mean, if you were a little less assumptive about the interior of blueberries just being water, you might have a weak magnetic field. There's got to be some iron wrapped up in those little blueberries somewhere. I don't know. I mean, I might believe that was cornflake earth, but <laughs> All right. I don't know about blueberry earth. I'll prove you wrong. I'm going to put one in my susceptibility. Ooh, no, I'm going to put one in my IRM machine, and then we'll see what happens. I'm going to have a mess to clean up. What's going to happen? <laughs> That's what grad students are for. <laughs> <laughs> so you have no magnetosphere. Uh, so we don't have anything protecting us from solar wind and cosmic particles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to get rid of a lot of hydrogen, water vapor, all that. Yeah. Uh, so which means that we're going to dry out. Right. Yeah. You're going to have a lot of photo dissociation, which... Like I said, this could be this could be saved by just some weird cloud dynamics. So who knows, who knows what that would truly do besides give us all cancer because we're not protected from, you know, solar radiation anymore. I mean, a stratospheric cold trap. You know, a good size inversion could hold some moisture down, down to the yeah, surface. See exactly. So we're okay. But then we got to think about moon. What's moon gonna do with blue barrier? Yeah, I mean, we have roughly the same mass now. Mm-hmm. So now we wind up in this weird tidally locked binary system or something like that. Um. <laughs> or we lose the moon. Or we lose it altogether. Or it loses us. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's... Blueberry Earth could go hurling through the solar system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That'd make a really gross sound when it hits Jupiter. Um, the summary of this paper is fantastic. If you don't want to read any of it, just read the summary. 
because do i encourage you to read all of it you it's you, not that long you totally should it's not that long it's not that hard but this is really <laughs> it's really great so you know if you're standing on earth turns into blueberries you lose a bunch of gravity you fall 715 kilometers <laughs> then you wind up swimming in an o- ocean of boiling jam <laughs> but the end result of the world is, is the best Uh, The end result is a world that has a steam atmosphere covering an ocean of jam on top of warm blueberry granita. There you go. (laughs) Delicious. And if you do look at some of the references, uh, of course, why would anybody care about the mechanical strength of a blueberry? Well, if you're going to warehouse them, Mm -hmm. you need to know how deep you can pile them in a bin before you start getting unacceptable jam rates at the bottom. Exactly. Yeah, this is, so obviously his references are those wild blueberries versus these other blueberries that he chooses. Um, But he says, you know, okay, so this is super funny, but there are a lot of exoplanets, um, oceanic exoplanets, that sort of are in a similar similar situation. So, you know, I mean, it's probably not a blueberry jam ocean, but it's some kind of weird chemistry ocean. Right? Methane lakes. I know. We've already talked about ice cores already. So. Yeah. You know, this isn't, this isn't as ridiculous as what you would think. So in what is quite possibly the most comprehensive answer to a stack exchange question. (laughs) uh, This was amazing. This was a great find. This is pretty funny. Uh, So Anders... Good job on this paper. Yeah. Yeah, this was great. If you have calculated the properties of what would happen if we simultaneously replace the Earth with something else, maybe somebody wants to do these calculations for Cornflake World. (laughs) Yeah. Or, you know, Christmas Bonbon Planet. Mm, Delicious also. (laughs) Yeah, we have a chocolatey core and coconut on the outside or compact coconut core are they filled with those little liqueurs what does that do to it <laughs> exactly so this is a field of research that you definitely need to uh, get involved with uh, we welcome your experimental evidence or supplies for these experiments <laughs> now, shannon how can they get a hold of us uh show at don't panic um you can find us on twitter we're at don't panic geo i'm at shannon doolin john is at geo underscore lehman uh we're on the stack oops nope i was reading that stack thing we're on the slack chat room <laughs> we're part of the software underground on the don't panic channels so as always thank you to our patreon supporters if you'd like to support us on patreon keep us going if you'd like a sticker from us write us and you can go to uh, patreon.com slash don't panic geo and until next week remember don't panic it's not an exact science Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.